Can you hear me? Good morning. It's good to be with you all on this gathering on the Lord's Day. Good to have our visitors with us, and we're very thankful for you being with us, and we look forward to the opportunity of getting to know you a bit. Please feel free to approach a member or a pastor if you have any questions about who we are as a church, and it's also uh, very good to have with us some old friends. Thankful for you uh, being with us as well. And um, if you would, turn with me as we continue in our worship together for the preaching of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 2. John chapter 2, as we continue our exposition through this gospel. John chapter 2, and this morning we want to focus on verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is the Word of God. Let us listen and pay attention with reverent hearts. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana, or in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and His disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman... What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. Amen. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. If you would, let us unite our hearts one final time in prayer and seek the Lord's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let us pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank You for the blessing of the Lord's Day. We thank You for the refreshment that Your Word is for our soul. Lord, in particular, we think even this morning of some of the glorious truths that we have sung from Your Word in these wonderful hymns that so concisely remind us of the glories of the Trinitarian Gospel, of what our triune God has done to redeem sinners to Yourself. Father, we pray this morning that You would give us attentive hearts. We pray that we would have reverent hearts as we come to Your Word and consider this the first of our Lord's public miracles. Father, we pray that You would cause our hearts to rejoice just as this group was rejoicing at this wedding, that we would rejoice in the good news of Christ, the great Bridegroom, come to save His church, come to save His bride. We pray that we would overflow with thanksgiving as we think about the significance of this miracle that speaks of the better ministry that Christ brings, superior to the old covenant arrangement. Father, we pray that as Your people, as believers, we would take heart, that we would grow in our measures of assurance as we Remember the gracious heart of our God towards us. Father, we pray for any who are here who are outside of Christ. We ask that You would be gracious to them and open their eyes to see the truth. We pray that You would cause them, where there is now currently rebellion, that You would cause them to be submissive to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. We pray that Your Holy Spirit, the giver of life, 
would come and make alive the heart that is now dead. That they would see and believe, and by believing that they might have life in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, draw near to us, we pray. Glorify Yourself. Glorify Your Son. Glorify Your Holy Spirit. We pray that our hearts would be filled with praise to the triune God to whom be glory forever and ever. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to uh, approach our text the way that we have uh, been in the Gospel of John, uh, namely in three consecutive sections. I want to first of all begin with the exposition of the text. What does it mean? What does it instruct us in? Secondly, we'll move to our section of doctrine that is deduced from the text. And then thirdly and finally, we will close with the application of the text to us. And so, if you have your Bibles, especially during our exposition, please have them open at John chapter 2 so that you can see in God's Word for yourself. But let's begin with the exposition of the text together. Verse 1 of chapter 2 begins with these words, on the third day. And I take that to mean this is three days after Jesus has called Nathanael. That's what just took place in chapter 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Now, Cana is a small city, uh, well, town, village, uh, located about eight miles north of Nazareth. Cana is the hometown of Nathanael, we find out in chapter 21. And John tells us that the mother of Jesus was there and that both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now that's something of a significant detail. I think we can safely assume that Jesus' family was well acquainted with the bridegroom. Um, you typically don't get invited to weddings of people that you, that you don't know. And in fact, it's very possible that this is the wedding of close friends of Mary and Jesus or, uh, or, or close family. And that perhaps explains why Mary feels an obligation to get involved with the situation that's about to arise regarding running out of wine. Um, John doesn't tell us how many disciples came. It could still be just the five that have been called in chapter 1. Uh, the mention of the twelve does not happen until chapter 6 of John's Gospel. But Jesus and his disciples are invited to the wedding, and Jesus, showing that he's not any sort of an ascetic, delights to agree to come to the wedding. Showing, by the way, his, our Lord's approval of this creation ordinance given by God, and Jesus accepts the invitation, desiring to celebrate the wedding with them. Now, just a bit of context. Weddings in Israel were very different from the weddings that we have today. Our weddings today happen in one day. Uh, weddings in Israel could last up to an entire week in terms of the celebration. And each day, new guests would come. And so it was kind of a revolving guest list. And as you would imagine, much food and much wine would be consumed in these days, which put often some significant financial strain on the bridegroom, whose, whose responsibility it was to provide for his guests. And at this particular wedding, we might say that social catastrophe struck for the bridegroom. Um, this is some people's worst nightmare, <laughs> either because of lack of preparation, or perhaps because more guests arrived than were expected, or perhaps just because this couple was not very well off. For one, one reason or the other, verse 3, they ran out of wine. And I've heard stories of weddings that have run out of food unexpectedly, and apparently it can be quite the traumatizing event for the one who's responsible for hospitality, and it can be a great embarrassment, um, because anyone who puts on a wedding, they want the wedding to be an occasion and a celebration of abundance and of indulgence, not that of lack and running out. Now, it seems that the wine running out has not yet been made known publicly. Um, the master of the feast doesn't give any indication that he's aware that they had run out of wine. Um, perhaps Mary herself is involved in overseeing the hospitality, and she either knows that we've just run out of wine, or she knows that they're very close to running out of wine. And seeing the situation, 
she, and, and wanting to prevent the shame of the bridegroom, she goes to Jesus and she says to him, they have no wine. And this seems, again, this seems to indicate that Mary felt that her family had a particular responsibility to help out in the situation. And so she applies, uh, Joseph now being presumed uh, to have died before this, she applies to her eldest son for help. And it's interesting, we're not told what Mary was expecting from Jesus. Uh, Remember, he had not performed any public miracle up until this point. This is his first public miracle. Um, Matthew Henry thinks that Mary was indeed expecting a miracle from Jesus. And uh, he actually speculates that perhaps, as Jesus had grown up in the household of Mary and Joseph... Perhaps there were times when Jesus miraculously, from time to time, helped relieve Joseph and Mary's uh, needs in their lowest state. And so Matthew Henry sees this as Mary essentially saying to her son, Jesus, could you do that again here with the wine? Calvin, on the other hand, um, and others think that Mary was perhaps not necessarily expecting a miracle, but perhaps just asking her son to distract the, the, the guests from the fact that they had run out of wine by offering them... Uh, some sort of religious discourse as a religious rabbi and teacher. But regardless, and and I tend to lean towards she probably was expecting a miracle because of the response Jesus gives. But regardless of what Mary had in her mind, uh, Jesus gives her a, a response. And to be clear, Jesus's response here is certainly something of a reproof. But it's probably not as jarring as we might think at first glance. Okay? Now, when we read these words in English, when, when in English a son addresses his mother, or his mother as woman, especially depending on the tone of voice, that can come across as very disrespectful. right? Um, we shouldn't read that into the text here, though. And, and one of the key cross-references is that at the end of the Gospel of John, um, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and... In his last moments, he is lovingly getting his mother's state of affairs into order. You remember, he commits his mother into the care of the Apostle John. And to do that, he says to her, Woman, behold your son. Now obviously, from the cross, Jesus is not reproving Mary there. And so we shouldn't read into this word woman some sort of of, uh, disrespect or lack of affection. Jesus is still honoring the fifth commandment here. But there is a reproof, to be sure. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, nine times in the Gospel of John, Jesus will refer to His hour. And His hour is, without a doubt, the hour of His glorification through His cross, through His resurrection, and His exaltation, as determined by the Father. Right? That's the significance of even speaking of my hour, is that Jesus is on the divine timetable of His Father. And when He says to Mary here, what does your concern have to do with Me? My hour has not yet come. He's essentially saying that Mary is meddling with something she has no right to meddle in. Namely, the Father's timeline for the Son's manifestation. And by Him calling her woman, He is indicating, I believe, that He is now no longer under her direction, but He is now living and acting only according to His Father's timeline. And that He is now to be about the works that His Father has given Him to do. And that as His earthly mother, she must now learn to live under His authority as Lord. And Mary, notice, doesn't protest. To to her credit, she should be credited for that. She took the reproof very graciously. And it's very interesting, apparently she, neither did she take his reproof as an all-out refusal on the part of Jesus to help her in the situation. Because notice what she says in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, it's, something, it's, it's ironic, just a comment here, because you'll, you'll run into this. It's ironic, Roman Catholics, if you ever talk to Roman Catholics, often Roman Catholics, in order to justify praying to Mary, they will often appeal 
to this passage where they claim we see Jesus doing whatever his mother tells him to do. What's ironic about that is that it's actually in this passage where we see Jesus firmly reminding Mary of her place. And in fact, the only command we have for Mary in this section is not her telling Jesus what to do, but rather her telling the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. Uh, so very, very ironic use of this, this passage. But nonetheless, uh, moving on, John then sets the scene for the miracle. In verse 6, it says, Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, these are, I mean, you, you have an idea of how much, you know, how large a 25 or a 20 to 30 gallon container is. These are large stone jars. And by the way, the Jews used stone because they believed that stone didn't contract ritual uncleanness. Um, six large stone jars, John says, according to the manner of purification of the Jews. Now, I do think that John telling us that these jars are used for ceremonial washing is more than just a factual detail. Okay, there was really no reason for John to include that detail if it doesn't have something to do with the miracle. He could have just said there were six large water pots. But I believe John is telling us something about the symbolic significance of the miracle itself. And I'll say more about that in our doctrine section. But just briefly here... There is a contrast between the, the purification that was powerless under the old covenant administration and the new wine of salvation that Christ is bringing in the new covenant. In other words, this miracle itself speaks of Jesus' better and superior ministry. You think about Moses. What was his first miracle? It was turning water into blood. Jesus's, Jesus, the head of the new covenant, first miracle is turning water into wine. And wine, we'll open this up, is symbolic in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Wine is symbolic for rejoicing and gladness. Listen to Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry says, Thus Christ came to bring in the grace of the Gospel, which is as wine that cheers God and man instead of the shadows of the law, which were as water, weak and beggarly elements. He says again, the beginning of Christ's miracles was turning water into wine, which intimates the difference between the law of Moses and the Gospel of Christ. Okay, we'll say more about that in our doctrine. Verse, verse 7. Jesus said to them, that is the servants, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Okay, these, these servants obey Christ without question. And notice they fill them all the way up to the brim so that there's no room for any to be added. Which emphasizes not only the magnitude of the, of the miracle, 150 gallons or so, but also emphasizes the fullness of the grace of the Gospel that Christ is bringing. And He immediately says to them, verse 8, draw some out now and take it to the Master of the Feast. Notice Jesus doesn't say, bring it here and let me taste it to make sure that it worked. Jesus performed this miracle with literally zero ceremony. He doesn't pray. Uh, he didn't use some immediate instrument like Moses often would use his, his staff. He simply sits where he is. He doesn't speak a word and simply by willing it, it is done. And so they take it. And by the way, I think them taking the water to the master of the feast shows, I think, their implicit faith in Christ. Because you think about it, it would have been a great embarrassment to them as servants to bring a cup to the master of the feast that's supposed to be filled with wine, only to find that it's just a cup filled with water. And so I think that's it, indicative that they were believing in Christ themselves and what he was able to do. And so just, or excuse me, so verse 9, they take it, and when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now pause there just for a second. Notice something very interesting. 
John says the servants who had drawn the water knew. That seems to indicate that when they drew the water out of these, or drew the liquid out of these jars and put it into a cup, the cup, there was still water in the cup at that point. And that seems to indicate that the miracle itself took place as they were bringing the cup to the master of the feast. But in any case, when the master of the feast tastes the water that had become wine, John says, Notice he didn't just say thank you very much to the servant and dismiss him to get, a, to get on with his other tasks. Um, there was something stunning about this wine. Remember, he has no clue where it came from. And so totally unsolicited by knowing any of the circumstances by which this wine came to be in front of him, the mere quality of the wine itself arrests his attention. And so verse 9, it says, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. He's he's obviously thinking at this point that the bridegroom had gone down into the cellar and pulled out the, the choicest bottle, the finest bottle. And verse 10, he says to him, every man at the beginning, that is at the beginning of a celebration, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then they set out the inferior but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, we, we all understand this, I'm sure. You don't drink the $200 bottle of wine after your senses have been a bit dulled by drinking the $2 bottle of wine. And by the way, I think something that's obvious and assumed here, this text proves that they weren't just drinking grape juice here. right? Your, your palate isn't dulled after a glass of grape juice. And this man understands the custom. You put the good wine out first so that people with a fresh palate can enjoy the aroma and the flavor. And then after they're a bit relaxed, then you bring out the cheap stuff because no one cares what the difference is. But this master of the feast is stunned because he thinks this bridegroom has done the exact opposite. He has, in his mind, this bridegroom has served what seemed to be the good wine first But now he's brought out the great wine with such a noticeable difference that it actually calls for a public recognition of what the bridegroom has supposedly done. Now, verse 11, as we bring our exposition to a close, verse 11 says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Very significant point. That is the primary purpose of Jesus' works and wonders and miracles. They are not merely to supply people's needs, but they are intended to put on display the divine glory of the Son. Just as we saw in chapter 1, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And John notes that his disciples believed in him. Now, I don't think that that means that the disciples were completely void of faith before this, but what I think it means is that they already having believed the testimony of John the Baptist and believing the testimony of the Word of God, they now had their faith strengthened as they beheld the miraculous power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And honestly, I don't know how much of the significance of this miracle they grasped at this moment. Uh, We'll see in chapter 2 how John even writes how they didn't really understand his talking about raising up the temple until after his resurrection. But nonetheless, regardless of how much they understood the significance of this miracle, clearly they understood that we are following one who is unique. And further revelation will reveal to them that this is one who brings an abundance of rejoicing, symbolized in the wine through his life and work. And that brings a close to our exposition. I want to transition now secondly into our section of doctrine and consider some doctrines that are, uh, I think, rightly deduced from the instruction of this text. And I have three that I want to give you this morning. There are more that we could open up, but for time's sake, I want to keep it simply to three. And I'll give them, give them to you as we go. Number one of doctrine de- deduced from this text 
And this is, granted, more of a practical doctrine related to the, the, the Christian life more than it is a theological doctrine. But it is this. Number one, Jesus does not condemn, but permits and even commends the moderate enjoyment of alcohol. Okay? Jesus does not condemn, but in fact permits and even commends the moderate enjoyment of alcohol. Now, there is a cultural reason for why I would even have to mention that in a sermon. <laughs> um, up until a hundred years ago, until the prohibition and all of that, what I just said would be thought to be a very strange statement to even have to be mentioned in a sermon, simply because it was taken for granted by the church. But because of various factors, there are mixed feelings continuing today among good Christians on this issue. But without a doubt, if we want to think biblically and not culturally about this issue, it is plain from our text that Jesus not only provides the wine, but more than that, He doesn't merely permit the tasting of alcohol, but also the enjoyment of its effects. Right? When, when the master of the feast says here, usually people serve the good wine first, and then after people have drunk freely, then they serve the bad wine, that clearly indicates that there is an effect of alcohol being felt. Now, of course, let me be quick to emphasize, with moderation. By no means, and I want to be very clear, by no means does Jesus here at all permit drunkenness or a lack of self-control. Okay? So we want to be very clear about that. But, brother and sister, I know, and I'll talk about this, I know there are people on different pages from this. We have to remember, what was the Lord Jesus Himself accused of being? He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, my guess is that they didn't say that because Jesus was a teetotaler who never touched a drop of alcohol. Right Now, of course, to be clear, he wasn't guilty of gluttony. He wasn't guilty of drunkenness. But he did freely partake in the good gifts of God, like food and drink, which gave dishonest men what they thought was a grounds to bring a false accusation against him. And someone might think to themselves... Well, wouldn't it just be wiser to just completely abstain in order to avoid all appearance of evil and give no one any cause for even making the accusation? Well, the answer to that is apparently Jesus didn't think so. Uh, Jesus could have done that if he chose, but he refused to be uh, governed by the false accusations of evil men. Jesus understood the freedom of God's commands and he conducted himself with a good conscience even if that meant others might twist his actions into unfounded accusations. Okay, now, I, I want to be very careful and nuanced in, here in, regarding how you as an individual Christian might respond to that. Okay? Uh, there are, I'm, I'm quite positive, not that this is the first question that I ask people, do you drink alcohol? But I, I would venture to guess that in a gathering of our size, there are some Christians here, good Christians, who choose not to ingest a single drop of alcohol. Okay? Um, or perhaps there are some who at least they view it with more suspicion than others might. And that might be because of your own history, your upbringing, you name it. There's all sorts of reasons that can influence that. If that's you this morning, I want you to know very clearly this is not some sort of, you know, kick in the pants of get with the reform program and go home and drink a beer today, okay? Um, I would never, and I take this very seriously, I would never want to encourage anyone to sin against their conscience. If you cannot drink in faith, then don't do it. It's not an option. Because Paul says whatever is not from faith is sin. If that's you this morning, that's fine. Because you need to remember, you are no worse off as a Christian for not having a drop of alcohol any more than anyone else is any better off as a Christian who do, have, who do drink alcohol. Right? Let, let's remember Romans 14, 17 and keep our prior, priorities. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
So in no way do I cast judgment on those who abstain. You are free to abstain. But here's the thing. We all have to recognize that biblically speaking, alcoholic drink is clearly permissible and even commended at times in the Word of God. So Psalm 104, God has given man wine to gladden the hearts of men. So even though you may choose to abstain, we all need to be educating our consciences according to the Word of God so that we're not limiting another's freedom or casting judgment on others who exercise that freedom. Right? That would be wrong. That's a line crossed too far. You can determine for yourself as a Christian how you choose to live, but you can't hold others hostage to your laws if they're not God's law. And so Jesus here illustrates the true bounds of Christian freedom, and he welcomes his followers to follow him into the same freedom. That brings us to the second thing, second point of doctrine. The very nature of this miracle speaks to the abundant blessing and rejoicing that Christ brings in the gospel. Okay? The very nature of this miracle emphasizes the abundant blessing and rejoicing Christ brings in the gospel. And I think this is something that's overlooked. Um, Let me put it this way. This miracle is more than just a random display of Christ's power. Okay, it does speak and demonstrate Christ's power, but it also, the miracle itself, speaks prophetically, if you will, of the superior ministry Christ brings in the gospel. There is, I mean, just pause and think about Old Testament imagery for a second. There is deep significance in the fact that Jesus' first public miracle is being performed where? At a wedding celebration. And what is it? He's changing plain water into wine that gladdens men's hearts. And not just any wine, into choice wine. And not just a small amount of it, but an abundance. There is significance to those details. These Jewish purification jars being filled to the brim with choice wine speaks to us of the boundless blessings and the comforting words that Christ brings to His people. It speaks of the old covenant obsoleteness giving way to the wine of new covenant salvation. The wine which is the blood of Christ that makes glad man's heart. Listen to the way that the prophets often spoke of the coming day of Messiah, the Old Covenant prophets. I've just got three here. There's many more we could look at. Jeremiah 31, verse 12. This is, Ken alluded to this chapter. This is the chapter in which the New Covenant is promised. Jeremiah writes, speaking of the coming of Messiah, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord radiant over the grain and over the wine and over the oil. Or Joel uh, 3, verse 18. He says, In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. Amos 9, verses 13 and 14. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. God says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And there are many other places we could go, in particular the Old Testament. Wine, along with oil and milk, wine is the biblical symbol for prosperity for the people of God. And the rejoicing of the people of God. And it speaks of God's blessing to His people. Just as the lack of wine, biblically speaking, indicates God's curse. Right? You think of Habakkuk 3. As he's talking about the judgment of God. And he says, even if there's no fruit on the vine. That's the old covenant prophet's way of indicating God's displeasure. And so here, Jesus, at the front end of His ministry is announcing visibly in this miracle the abounding, overflowing blessings that He has come to bring to His bride. 
He lavishes the church with the choicest wine. The blessings of union with Himself. Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah preaches the Gospel in Old Covenant language and he tells Israel, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus is not coming on the scenes as just kind of the status quo. His covenant is not just an extension of the Old Covenant in which the Jews were married to the law for earthly blessings. Rather, His covenant is one in which by His own blood, He severs our ties from the law and He marries us now to Himself. And we, by faith in Christ, become the heirs of His fullness. You remember chapter 1, verse 17, John says, For the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And he didn't just describe it as grace. You remember, he described it as grace upon grace. Never-ending grace. Grace without measure. As these 150 gallons of wine signify. I, I I hope you realize this. 150 gallons of wine was way more than this little wedding at Cana needed. Um, that's, That's a lot of wine. But it's a picture of Christ's extravagant and generous benevolence to His church. God's salvation in Christ is not just a satisfactory salvation. It's a, it's a salvation that outdoes our every need. This speaks to us of Christ's generous bestowal of grace upon every sinner who applies to Him. I want to encourage you and plead with you if you're here and you're an unbeliever, If you apply to Christ today for grace, by faith, for the pardon and being forgiven of your sins, you will receive grace upon grace. Christ is not stingy with His grace. And He promises that whoever comes to Him, He will in no wise cast out. In a figurative way, in a figurative way here, The law was given first, which was good, just like this good wine was served first. But God has saved the best blessings for the Gospel of His Son when He comes into the world and brings a new covenant. That's what we're seeing here. Christ has come to be the superior bridegroom of Israel. And not just Israel according to the flesh, but Israel according to the Spirit. Made of Jew and Gentile. The wine here signifies the abundant reason to rejoice in Christ. Now, let me, let me say this. I want to bring up a subject and I want to be sensitive. This is why what we've just seen about how the Bible speaks of wine as the symbol of rejoicing and gladness in God's blessing and goodness, that is one of the main reasons wine is the element that's prescribed for us in the Lord's Supper. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, speaking of the Lord's Supper, he says, the cup of blessing which we bless. I think think we lose that somewhat in our celebration of the Lord's table. That the Lord's table is a celebration. It's a time of blessing. And the cup is a cup of blessing. And it's a time of thanksgiving to God. And wine, biblically speaking, is the symbol for that. Because Christ's blood, signified by the wine, is cause for rejoicing. And I think we lose something of the significance of the Lord's Supper being a celebration when we change the elements to that of juice. And I would like, and I'm not doing this on my own, I, I sought permission from the elders to make sure I'm not speaking out of line here, and they're in full agreement, but I would like to at least, along with the elders, start the conversation about returning to a more biblical pattern in the Lord's table of bread and wine. And I know know there are some here who perhaps would struggle with that, and that's why I say I want to start the conversation. Nothing has been set in stone. This isn't just some fast thing we're wanting to do. I think, personally, as I've wrestled through this issue, I think Christians, as I've already said, are totally at liberty to abstain from alcohol in their personal lives. 
But when it comes to the sacraments that our Lord has appointed, and let's not forget it is the Lord who chose the elements, the question that has to be answered is, is it right for the individual conscience to trump the command of Christ? And so that's a conversation that we, we want to continue. But that brings us thirdly, our third point of doctrine. It's related to Mary and her inquiry here with her son. The third point of doctrine is this. Jesus, not us, determines the answers to our requests. Jesus, not us, determines the answer to our requests. Uh, There is a profound lesson here with Mary and her son that teaches us about our disposition in prayer. Even though she is his mother according to the flesh, here she is portrayed for us as a saint approaching the sovereign Lord of glory. And here, we have an account in which Mary appeals to Jesus to act, and that's a picture of prayer, right? Us coming to God. And though Jesus does choose to intervene in the situation, He does so not because of Mary's authority over Him, but because of His sovereign determination. That's very significant for us in prayer. That is the posture with which we need to approach God in prayer. Okay? It is right. Don't get me wrong. It is right and God invites us to lay at His feet all of our concerns, all of our desires, even in earnest. But we need to remember there is a line crossed like Mary was guilty of when we subtly have the posture that dictates to God what He must do. Let us all remember God is the determiner of His own ways. And He does not take counsel from men. God is the disposer of all things and He does all of His good pleasure. And therefore, our requests are requests of God, not demands upon God. I assume as parents, you've had a similar uh, experience as, as I have at times when your child, perhaps you know, too excited, they kind of forget their place for a minute, They have a slip of the tongue, and instead of saying, hey, Dad, can we do this? They come and say, hey, Dad, you're going to do this for me, right? And what do you have to do? You have to gently, hey, remind them, I'm not one to be dictated to. I'm, I'm one to be beseeched by you. And how much more for humans to approach the Lord of glory with a submissive heart? Once Mary made the matter known and was reproofed for her presumption, notice what she did. She left the matter with Christ. She didn't continue to press the issue. She essentially concluded, He knows best. He is to be obeyed, not me. And so, Christian, let us learn from Mary's moment of weakness, which we are so often guilty of, and let us seek to avoid the Lord's chastening reproof. And if we do have the Lord's chastening reproof, let us with quietness and delayed submission receive it like Mary. Now that brings us to our third and closing section, our application. Our application, and really I've kept it very simple this morning. I have three applications and each of them correspond to the point of doctrine that they have that we already talked about. So three brief applications for us as we close this morning. Number one, regarding alcohol. The wrong application, and I've already alluded to this, the wrong application for me as a pastor would be to say, now all of you just go home and have a beer. Okay? You don't have to do that because God has not commanded you to do that. And it would be wrong of me to impose on your liberty of conscience because you stand or fall before your own master. However, here's the application. All of us must at least submit to the truth of the Bible that drinking alcohol is an issue of Christian freedom, which others have every right to enjoy to the glory of God. And therefore, we ought not to pass judgment on those who do things that we ourselves don't want to do. However, it cuts both ways. Okay, so let me speak to the other side of that. On the other side, if you are here and you're one who recognizes your freedom in Christ to enjoy things, you too must not pass judgment on those who choose not to. Okay? So don't talk about them behind their backs and say, you know, so-and-so has a bad conscience about doing this or that. Can you believe that? 
What is that to you? That, that's between them and the Lord. And if they're not hindering your liberty, then let them be. As Paul says, Romans 14, who are we to pass judgment on the servant of another? In fact, you should rejoice that they want to walk before God with a clear conscience. Even if you don't think that their conscience is rightly educated. Okay? By the way, maybe you can help them with that. Not by pressuring them to sin against their conscience, but by offering brotherly or sisterly help and, and teaching to help them come to a better grasp of the freedom of the gospel. Number two, regarding the abundant blessings that the gospel brings as signified in the wine and the abundance of wine. I, I mentioned, I alluded to uh, Isaiah 55. Christian, whenever you are downcast and discouraged and you are doubting the love of Christ, I think Isaiah 55 should be an Old Testament go-to to encourage your heart in the freedom of the gospel. Isaiah writes, Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And he asks them, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. And he says, listen to me carefully. Eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. That's the gospel. The abundance of joy and blessing that Christ brings to us. Christian, be reminded of the generous heart of Christ towards his church. We need the weekly reminder that Christ is not stingy with His grace. We are so wired by nature in terms of our fallen nature, and we are so apt to fall back into a covenant of works mentality with God as though the moment we sin, suddenly God doesn't care for us anymore. Or He doesn't love us anymore. And we feel like I need to hide from God the way Adam hid from God in the garden. But Christian, remember the Gospel. Christ came so that even with all of our sin, we don't hide from God. We draw near to God through the blood of Christ. That's what glorifies Him. That's what magnifies Him. When His grace is displayed as more than enough, abounding to the chief of sinners, when Christ is believed on by the Christian, Believing that there is more grace in Him than there is sin in us. He wants us to rejoice in that. To be assured in that. And to drink deeply again and again at the fountain of His grace. Thirdly, last application. Regarding prayer. Regarding our instruction from Mary. Christian, we must, we must remember... That Christ is not only our gracious Savior, but He is also our sovereign Lord. As Mary had to learn here. We sing often the line, Whate'er my God ordains is right. First of all, Christian, let us imitate Mary. Okay? This is something that shouldn't be missed. We should commend her for what is commendable. First of all, what an example for us in prayer that when Mary faced difficulty, the, her, her first thought was to do what? To run to Christ. To make her needs known to Christ. To receive His help. She should be commended for that and imitated in that. And Christian, how often are we guilty? If not of presumption, we're guilty of neglect. She may have been a bit presumptuous, but at least she applied to Christ. Develop within you, Christian. And discipline yourself into cultivating, <coughs> excuse me, cultivating a reflex which immediately turns life's issues into prayers to God. But also let us learn from Mary's overstep. And let us learn to entrust our cares to Christ as the great physician. It is ours to beseech God to act, not to demand God to act in the exact way we expect. We approach the throne of grace with reverence, with a distrust in our own wisdom and a trust, a trust in the divine counsel. 
And so, brothers and sisters, as we close and we consider God, God's Word, let us take away from this passage the main thing that we rejoice in the Gospel. That we rejoice as they rejoice at this wedding banquet. That we rejoice in the grace of God that has been lavishly poured out upon His church. And let us with gladness adore and submit ourselves to Christ as Savior and as King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, write Your Word upon our hearts. We thank You that You instruct us in every portion of Your Word, no matter where we turn, that it is profitable for the souls of Your people for teaching and reproof and instruction in righteousness. Father, we thank You that Your Word is sufficient. Thank You that it tells us exactly what we need to believe and know to live a life of faith pleasing to You. We thank You that it is clear and can be understood. Father, we pray that having been confronted with Your Word, Your Spirit would write it with power on our hearts. As Ken alluded to Jeremiah 31 and the promise of the New Covenant and Your law being written upon our hearts by Your Spirit, we pray that every time we sit under the instruction of Your Word, Your Spirit would cause it to be effectually applied to our hearts and our minds and our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would go away here not only instructed people, but also changed and transformed people. That we would live out our lives according to the doctrine that has been handed down, down to us. Father, be gracious to us. We pray For any who are here who are not Christians, we pray that today they would apply to Christ for salvation from their sins. Lord, that they would not delay, that they would see in this miracle the abundance, the abundance of forgiveness that is offered to sinners, the abundance of mercy, and the abundance of cause to rejoice. We pray, Lord, that You would cause the one who is bowed down in anguish over sin that You would grant them to experience the liberty and the freedom the Gospel brings. The freedom from condemnation, having been justified freely by Your grace. Father, draw near to Your people. We pray that You would bless our time of fellowship together. Pray that You would be with us in our conversations. Help us, Lord, to instruct and encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. We pray, Lord, that You would grant us fruitful and blessed conversation and discussion. We pray that those who are downcast, those who are grieving in heart, would be encouraged. We pray, Lord, that those who are rejoicing would help others to rejoice with them. We pray, Lord, that through Your church today, You would help every part to minister to the other parts so that together we would grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. We ask that you would be with us and draw near to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.